You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. This morning, we are going to be continuing our sermon series, which we started two weeks ago, uh, that we've titled Major in the Minors. The plan is to spend each Sunday morning going through one of the 12 books of the Minor Prophets, just giving an overview for you and then honing in on a couple of the major themes that we can learn from. We also hope that in doing so, that it'll inspire each of you each week to go home and read through the book yourself so that the Lord can speak to you personally through his word, because it's important that you guys are, are going home and reading the word as well. I only, we only get you for, for one Sunday, uh, you know, an hour and a half each week. You guys need to be going home and reading the word yourself. So we want to encourage you to do that and just give you the tools that, that uh, you can use to, to be able to do that. And so that's what we're going to be doing as we go through the minor prophets as well. And today um, we are going to be learning from and all about the prophet Micah. We're going to be learning from Micah. Uh, and two weeks ago, Pastor Brad, when he started this sermon series, he pointed out four specific points uh, that we need to remember about the minor prophets. And I also want to highlight those points as well as we bring the book of Micah into view. Before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could be here this morning. I thank you um, for each and, and every person here, Lord God. I pray that you would open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, Lord God, that you would uh, just speak to us through your word, that you would write it on our hearts, that it would uh, bring conviction, Lord, that it would, that it would bring um, excitement for, for your name and for who you are as well, Lord God. And um, I just pray that you would, you would just um, give us a passion for who you are this morning as we, as we dig into the prophet Micah, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so four points that uh, we want to remember about the minor prophets and specifically about Micah this morning. So the first point that we need to remember is that the minor prophets are not minor league prophets. The word minor is uh, only in reference to the shorter length of the books and uh, definitely not because their message was less important than the major prophets, which means we need to stop skipping over the minor prophets and, and dig into them because they are important. Uh, Micah actually contains what some theologians have called one of the most significant and profound verses in the entire Bible. So we'll get to that soon. Um, hint, it's Micah 6.8. Uh, we should also note that uh, Micah was a younger contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, uh, so he lived at the same time, and, and his prophecies actually mirror some of Isaiah's in both subject matter and in importance. Namely, that God would send a Messiah to restore and one day reign as Savior and King over not only God's people, but the people of all nations. So, and it was through Micah's lips, in fact, that God also revealed that the Messiah would be born in a little town of Bethlehem. And so the words of Micah, in fact, among other things, are, are, are incredibly significant especially because he prophesied both Jesus' birth and the location of his birth, and he talks about Jesus' second coming and what that's going to look like when he reigns. So, and we still anticipate and hope for that today as well. So that's the first point. They're not minor league 
prophets. They are important. Secondly, the second point, as we major in the minors here, it's important for us to remember that the prophets themselves had real historical lives. So that they're real people with, with real struggles and, and real feelings who sought to follow after God in their own lives. In fact, the first verse of Micah tells us who he is and when he lived. Micah 1 verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so we can see here, as it says that Micah was a Judean who hailed from the southeastern uh, rural community of Moresheth in Judah, and that he lived during the reign of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah which tells us he was alive sometime during the years 750 and 687 BC. And so this would have been just over 100 years before the Babylonian exile. And the records of those kings, which, which are mentioned, can also be read in 2 Kings 15, starting at verse 32, and going to 20 and 21. And so I encourage you to read that. You get, it, it gives you context of what's happening in the day that Micah is prophesying. And um, what you'll find is that these kings, Jotham and Hezekiah, were for the most part faithful to God's word, but that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, was one of the worst, most corrupt, self-serving, and idolatrous kings in the history of Judah. And so it's really the lasting effects of this corruption and, and and, and rebellion and also the corruption and rebellion of kings in Israel, which Micah seems to be speaking to. This is what he's speaking to and and against and calling out. Which then brings us to the third point about the minor prophets that we need to remember, which is that at the time, these prophets were the conduit through which God had chosen to speak to his people. This is how God chose to speak to his people. Micah 3.8, speaking about himself, Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the prophets were the Holy Spirit-inspired mouthpiece of God, and therefore the words they spoke carried the authority, power, and divinity of God himself. In fact, they still do. They still do, right? God's word through Micah still speaks to us today. It's still authoritative. It's still God's word speaking to us. Again, which is why we shouldn't be skipping over these minor prophets. They are significant. They are important. Micah, though, at at the time that he was saying these prophecies, he he would have most likely directed his prophecies to and amongst the citizens of, of Judah. So he's probably speaking among the people. Uh, All those prophecies did also concern that of the northern kingdom of Israel as well, but he would have been prophesying these things or speaking them to just regular citizens. Um, And this was unlike his contemporary Isaiah, who usually prophesied directly to the leaders and kings within the royal court. So we have Micah speaking to the people, we have Isaiah speaking to the kings in the royal court. That's similar to Daniel and, and Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel was speaking to the people and Daniel was speaking in the courts of Babylon. All right. It's also important to note as well that while Micah only contains seven chapters, super short, 
can read it in one sitting. It's really easy. It's important to note, though, that these prophecies would have been spoken over a period of at least 30 to 40 years. In other words, it's, it's not just one long, continuous prophecy for one period of time or one people, right? But rather, a number of prophecies that are comp- compiled together in one book, which admittedly sometimes makes them hard to decipher or understand because they're not always in context. But it's, it's important to remember that, though, as, as, as we read through it. Um, but that brings us to the next point, the fourth and final point about uh, the minor prophets, is that we need to remember that overall their primary purpose was to call God's people to repent of their sin so that they can return to the Lord. To repent of their sin so that they can return to the Lord. That, that's what's going on throughout the minor prophets. And Micah is no different in this. The purpose of his prophecies, we can read, are to call out God's people in their sin with that desire to restore them back into communion with God. In fact, the, the seven chapters can easily be split up into, into three, sec- three sections, chapters 1 to 2, chapters 3 and 5, and chapters 6 and 7, where each section begins with God calling out his people's sins through the prophet Micah, followed by their pending judgment if they refuse to repent, which is then amazingly followed by a promise of future blessing and restoration. So one of the most important, uh, one of the most significant things that we see over and over, again, in, in the book of Micah as you read through it, is God's loving and good character on display. Specifically, we get to see his justness in dealing with sin and rebellion. We get to see his faithfulness and mercy in restoring his people despite their sin. And finally, we get to see his loyalty to the covenant that he made with his people, which began with Abraham, as he promises to continually restore his relationship with them. Also that they can, in response, live according to his commandments and then become conduits of the same justness and that same loving faithfulness and mercy to others. This is why Micah 6 verse 8 is known as one of the most important verses in all of Scripture since it it perfectly and powerfully sums up God's desire for his people to repent from their sinful ways so that they can instead walk with him and emulate him as a blessing to others, which is what they were called to be as God's people. And so Micah 6.8, it happens at a time in the book when when, you know, Mike has been calling out their sins and stuff, and then God's people are like, all right, what, like, whatever. What, what do you want us to do? You want us to sacrifice some stuff? Is that going to make you happy? And then, and then this is what he says, Micah 6, 8. He says, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. He has told each of you what is good 
and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, mercy and kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And, and I want to point out that word, that word faithfulness there that's translated as faithfulness in this, in this uh, translation uh, is also sometimes translated as either mercy, to love mercy, or, or as kindness, to love kindness. And that's because the Hebrew word here, which is hesed, actually means all three of those things. It's quite often used in the Bible, actually, to, to, to describe God's devotional or faithful kindness and mercy to humanity. So overall, then, this word could be translated as devotional kindness and mercy or faithful kindness and mercy, which means that what this verse is implying, then, is that God is calling his people to mirror his own character and love in being consistently just and faithfully kind and merciful to one another and to love doing it just as God loves doing for us. And this Micah reminds us here is what is good, right? He says he has told each of you what is good. And I want to talk about that word good as well. Again, this should hark, this, that, that word should actually harken us back to, to Genesis 1 and 2, where, where we find God creating the world and everything in it. And when he was finished, what did he call it? Good. He called it good. And then within the Garden of Eden itself, he, he created man and woman in his own image. He created them to dwell in his presence in relationship with him and also gave them a purpose to, to work in and take care of his creation on his behalf, right? And about this, he called it very good. That's right. And, and it's unfortunate that these days that we've kind of dumbed down or watered down that word, haven't we, right? Like when I ask my sons how their day was at school, they're like, good, right? Or, or when someone asks how we're doing, you know, we come into church in the morning, how are you doing today? I'm good, right? In fact, my, my English professor in, in university, uh, she didn't even let us use that word in our essays or in our papers because it was so basic and generic. She hated that word, good. She'd circle it, you know, get rid of this word. Say fantastic or something. But we need to understand, though, that, that its use in Scripture is anything but generic or basic. We need to realize that when the Bible uses the word good, as we see in Genesis and in Micah, it's actually referring to that which lines up with who God is. His purpose, His holiness, His character, and His intended order in creation. So again, it's referring to the perfection and righteousness and shalom in which God designed us to dwell in and live out. And shalom, by the way, is that Hebrew word. Not only, and not only means peace, but it also means completeness and wholeness. It's what's good. So again, God's continuing and faithful desire is to bring humanity back into that shalom, into his image, into what's good, which was once found in the garden. And he has to do that by, first of all, undoing the destructive effects of sin. Sin is what corrupts what's good. 
And we know as, as Christians on this side of the cross that, that he accomplishes this through the perfect work of Jesus who came to defeat the power of sin in order to restore and reconcile us back to God through his death and resurrection. And Micah even prophesies that this would come about because he's, he's speaking to a people that, that are lost in their sin. They can't get out of it themselves. And so Micah prophesies this. Micah 5, 2-5. says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is all about Jesus, if you couldn't tell. He's the Messiah who's from the ancient of days. In other words, eternally with God. And yet he's the one who was also born as human in Bethlehem. He's the good shepherd who stood in the strength and majesty of the Lord and and restores for mankind what was lost in the garden. He's the one who now sits at the right hand of God and reigns over all the earth. He is our shalom, our peace with God, our wholeness, our righteousness, the only one who is good. Because he's the only one who perfectly lived justly, who lived with faithfulness and mercy, and who walked humbly with God. That's the good news, that that he did this on our behalf even to the point of exchanging his goodness, his righteousness with our deserved punishment for sin on the cross, completely satisfying God's just wrath as our perfect sacrifice. And and now through faith in him, peoples of all nations can receive forgiveness of sins and dwell securely with God as sons and daughters in his kingdom. Of course, again, the reason, though, that God has to declare this future promise of a Messiah who would bring God's shalom and goodness throughout the earth for them is because they were failing to fulfill this role themselves. Though that's what God had called them and set them apart to do. Micah 7, 2. It's the last, last chapter of Micah. He says this. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. That's pretty bleak. Right? But instead of just justness, and instead of mercy, what we read in Micah is that they were rampant with injustice and oppression. In fact, if you read through it, what what we can read is that the rulers of Israel and Judah were oppressing the poor. 
The rich were stealing coveted land from widows and the weak through lies and deceit. The poor were unable to defend themselves in courts because judges expected bribes. We read that their so-called prophets would only speak positive and affirming messages in order to prop themselves up with riches and popularity. Didn't want to say anything that would offend, you know, rather than, than speak the truth and call out sin, as we see Micah doing. And priests were only ready to bless those who paid them and would curse those who refused and rather than just relying on the provision of people's offerings and doing their job for anyone and, and everyone. And we read that their the, the, citizens, the citizens of Judah and Israel would lie to each other and use and, and steal from one another for their self-serving purposes to the point where no one could trust or rely on even their own family members. So we see injustice and oppression. But the root cause of this ungodly behavior was due to the fact that they'd refused to walk humbly with their God. Instead of trusting and submitting to his word and his commandments, instead of saying, Lord, thy will be done, which would have brought them peace and goodness and provision, they decided to pridefully trust in their own ways in foreign idols and gods, in weapons and chariots of war, and even in the protection of foreign nations like Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. All things which God warned them would be harmful for them. God warned them that these things would bring them to destruction. And at one point, God asks his people, doesn't my word bring what is good? Is that word good again? Right? Perfection, shalom, holiness, righteousness, completeness. He says, doesn't my word bring what is good? But in one of the most poignant verses of the book, the people shout out from Micah 2 verse 6. They shout out to Micah, quit your preaching. They preach. Stop preaching, or they should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. In other words, they're saying, stop preaching God's word and God's commandments to us because it makes us feel bad. It doesn't make us feel very good. And they're not just saying it, they're preaching it. This is their sermon. Imagine if I stood up here and said, don't listen to God's word. Do whatever you want. Do whatever makes you happy. That's their sermon. That's what they're preaching. They're preaching that God's word is no good and that it shouldn't be preached because it doesn't line up with their own morality and their own lifestyles. Which does sound a lot like morally liberal people today who preach at us over social media to stop preaching God's word because it makes them feel bad doesn't affirm them. Though to be fair, we can point the finger, but we also need to look at ourselves, right? Whenever, whenever we choose to act in a way that doesn't align with God's word, we're also preaching the same thing. 
We're also saying, stop your preaching. We're saying that we don't trust God's word and that, and that our way is better when we live in a way that doesn't align with it. So when we take a look at our own lives, what, what are we actually preaching to, to others? When others see our lives, what are they hearing? That God's word is, is authoritative? Or that it's only nice when we agree with it? Anyway, all the while, Micah writes that even as they acted wickedly, that they still proudly boasted that because of their heritage, the Lord was with them. And yes, he was with them all right, but he was with them in judgment. He was coming to judge them, it says. Precisely because God is just, and therefore, and therefore he'll always deal rightly with sin. He can't leave un, unrepentant sin unchecked. And yes, he's patient with us, and he's slow to anger, but there does come a point where a just and loving God can no longer excuse injustice and hate. Though, I, though I'd argue that God's declaration of discipline over them here is, is actually pretty fitting because he declares that the oppressors would soon become those who were oppressed. The self-serving rich would become desolate and hungry. The violent would be brought to violence. The prideful rulers, the prophets and priests and seers would soon be humbled and brought low. And the idolaters would soon be separated from the temple of the Lord their God and brought into the nations of these false idols which they'd put their trust in. On that end, Micah declares that this enactment of God's justice would take place when Israel would be defeated and plundered at the hands of the nation of Assyria, and then in Judah, when they would also be plundered and brought into exile by the Babylonians. That was their discipline. Unless, of course, they repented and turned back to the Lord. This is what God would have preferred. He prefers grace over discipline. Ultimately, he's calling them to relent and to come back to him, to, to experience his mercy and be set free to live in blessing and in accordance with their covenant with him. But we know that cumulatively, they ultimately refuse to do this because both of the conquests and exiles by the Assyrians and Babylonians took place just as Micah prophesied. What's amazing, though, is that, as I mentioned before, even while God declares his judgment over them, he still gives them hope, right? Over and over, in, in the midst of their sin and rebellion, he still promises them future blessing and restoration. He says, I'm going to be faithful to my covenant, even though you guys are not. And he decrees multiple times throughout Micah that one day a remnant of his people will be gathered once again from exile into shalom, into the Lord's presence, where there will be no more war, 
There will be no more injustice against the poor and weak and those who cannot defend themselves. A time when there's no more violence, no more idolatry, and no more wickedness. Into a place of goodness. Where no more sacrifice for sin is needed. Where people once again bear his image. Where they act justly, love faithfulness and mercy, and walk humbly with their God. When all peoples will come to the house of the Lord to learn from his word. In fact, what's amazing is that Micah ends, like the whole book ends with, with this incredible declaration of hope and salvation to that day of the Lord when all nations will, will come forth and tremble before the Lord as his people will declare from Micah 7, 18 to 20, who is a God like you, forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and faithful love to Abraham as you swore to our ancestors from days long ago. So even in, in, in the midst of, of their judgment, God ends with this promise of grace and mercy and salvation. He declares to them that one day his anger will end. He will again have compassion on them, that one day their sins will be completely forgiven and vanquished thrown into the depths of the sea, never to resurface. And that even while they remained unfaithful to God's covenant with them, he'll remain faithful to it and restore them. Not because of anything they've done, obviously, but because of who he is. Because he delights in faithful love, because he's just and merciful, because he's loyal to his people, because he is good. This is also the very same promise that, that we as Christians cling to as well, as we try to live out our lives in this broken world. As theologian Eric Redmond writes, as followers of King Jesus, we, we are among the families that God promised to bless through Abraham. Right? This promise is for us. Then he goes on, he says, Yet we still struggle with many of the same challenges that face the people of Israel and Judah. We still carry the residual effects of our old nature. There will be days when we will face temptations, and the pull of this world will be strong in our lives. What will we do if we succumb in that moment? We will hear God say, I want you to come back, confess your sin, experience my forgiveness, and continue to pursue me with your life. God forgives, saves, and restores people to fellowship with himself. And that is the source of our hope. Micah himself declares this in Micah 7 verse 7, when he says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Romans 10, 13 says it like this. For everyone who calls 
on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our hope. Jesus, who was born in the little town of Bethlehem, he is our hope. He is our salvation and our peace with God. Jesus was good for us. So now when we call on the Lord, we're we're not judged by our own works or by our sins, but on Jesus' good and perfect work for us. But until that day when Jesus comes again and, and we can experience this salvation and shalom in full, we have to ask ourselves as, as Christians, as God's people, what does God require of us until then? The same thing he's always required of his people, to trust in him and to be his image bearers in this world. Another way we could say that is to Love him and love one another. Two greatest commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on those. But another way to say that is from Micah 6.8, which we'll come back to again, where he says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. A popular question these days, especially among um, younger adults or those going through a midlife crisis, is um, what does God want me to do with my life? What what does God want me to do with my life? This is your answer. Wherever you are, wherever you work, whatever your relationships are, this is what God wants you to do with your life. And Jesus has transformed us and filled us with his spirit so that we can do this. This is what is good. This is what God requires of us so that we can shine his light into the world. First of all, to act justly toward others in every area of your life. That is, to live with integrity, to deal fairly, to honor what is right, to be a protector and helping hand for the weak and vulnerable and those who cannot protect themselves. And secondly, to love being devoted in kindness and mercy. With the love of God in us, as it says in 1 John, we should love one another, right? That is, we should love to continually offer forgiveness, kindness, mercy, peace, generosity, patience, empathy, and compassion to sinners and saints alike even in the midst of being wronged, or even when people seemingly deserve the opposite, because again, Jesus did all of this for us even while we were sinners. And again, he's given us the Holy Spirit so that we can bear this fruit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And finally, most of all, and in order to do everything else, in order to act justly, in order to love faithfulness and mercy and kindness, we need to walk humbly with our God. And this means to to willingly surrender ourselves to his word and to his ways to acknowledge that they're better and higher than ours. To say to the Lord, like, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's about to face the cross for our sins, saying, not my will, but yours be done. We need to learn how to say that in every area of our lives. 
And this also means that we need to prioritize and spend time with the Lord daily in his word, in prayer, and in worship, and in the encouragement and fellowship with other believers. This is what is good. This is what the Lord requires of us. And will we always be perfect in it? No, Jesus was perfect for us, which is why that when we fail, God is quick to forgive us in Jesus' name when we repent. And furthermore, the more that we walk humbly with God, the more we'll shine as his lights on this earth. We'll become that remnant or or image of the goodness and shalom of the kingdom of God that's to come in full when Jesus comes again.